next announcement. You ready? This is our last message in Titus. Yeah, that's good, isn't it? Titus is a very small book. It's only three chapters. So what I thought, for those of you who haven't been here, I'll give you a little summary of the book of Titus, and then we'll finish it off. So find the book of Titus. It's after all the key books in your New Testament. So go to Titus. And if I would ask the question, I'm going to see how, how much my class has learned over the past few weeks. If I said, what's the theme of Titus, you'd say what? Good works, that's right. Very good. Now, today the pastor talked about good works and grace, and it was a good message, and pretty much confirmed what the book of Titus is all about. So the book of Titus, the theme is good works. Now, there's a sub-theme, and the sub-theme is uh, sound words, which that phrase, sound words, sound teaching, sound doctrine, things like that, mentioned nine times in the book of Titus, and it refers to the gospel. The word sound is a word out of the medical profession, and it means healthy in the Greek, and it's the healthy gospel, a healthy teaching, and the healthy or the real gospel, the gospel that affects salvation produces good works, okay? The truncated gospel, the false gospel, produces no good works. Okay? So that's what you need to know. Then we saw that the Apostle Paul writes to Titus and gives him a five-fold assignment. <clears throat> and we see that in chapter 1. So if you just turn there, we'll do this very quick uh, running summary of the book, <clears throat> and then we'll finish up the book. In Titus chapter 1, in verse 5, he tells Titus, For this reason I left you in Crete, that's an island in the Mediterranean, for this purpose, number one, that you should set things, set in order the things that are lacking. So the first reason that Titus has been left on this island is that there are some things that need to be done. And Paul and Titus had gone through the island, planted churches, evangelized and planted churches throughout the island. And Paul had to leave very quickly on another mission trip. And so there's some things that still need to be done. And Titus is assigned that task of setting things in order, which means if you have to put things in order, what are they now? They're out of order, okay? And that's what happens when you have a new church plant. I planted a church and uh, did the best I could, but guess what? When you start off right the first Sunday, things are not in order. Things are sort of in chaos, and people want to know, where is this church going? What's this church all about? And so Titus is going to set things in order. That's purpose number one. Purpose number two in that same verse. And appoint elders, that would be leadership, in every city as I commanded you. So the church will need leaders, and he is to find the right leaders. The next verses tell about what kind of leaders he should appoint. Then the third thing he's to do is found in verse 10 <coughs> of chapter 1. The reason he has to set things in order and appoint leaders is because, for there are many insubordinates. <laughs> That's why he needs to set things in order. Both idle talkers and deceivers, these are people who are in the church. Now look at this, especially those of the circumcision. These are Jewish church members who are causing uh, havoc in the church. Verse 11, whose mouths must be stopped. They subvert whole households, which would be household churches. That's churches met in houses. 
They're subverting the whole church. The whole church is getting mixed up. Teaching things which they ought not for the sake of dishonest gain. And then in verse 13, he tells them this, right in the middle of verse 13. Therefore, Titus, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. You need to tell them to shut up or ship out, you know, get on board. They need to get on board and start preaching the healthy gospel. So that's the third thing. So we have set things in order, appoint elders, and rebuke the dissenters who are Jewish church members who are causing trouble. Because there's a lack of leadership, they've sort of filled the void. Okay? Now there's a fourth thing. He's to instruct the congregation, and that's what chapter 2 is about. And he mentions five groups that Titus is to instruct. And we saw in verse 2, the older men. In verse 3, he's to instruct the older women. In verse 4, we have the younger women who are need to need to get instruction. Then in verse 6, he's to instruct the young men. And then in verse 9, he is to instruct the slaves. And what he is instructing them to do is to behave like Christians, to live an ethical life, and also to perform good works, live godly, soberly, righteously, uh, kindly, meekly, in a state of humility, uh, in other words, be like Jesus. That's how you're to live, and then do good works. Why are they to live like this and perform the good works? We see that in verse 5 of chapter 2. He says, <coughs> for example, to the young women that they are to be discreet, chaste, homemakers, good, obedient to their husbands. Now look at this. Here's the reason. That the word of God may not be blasphemed. That the word of God may not be blasphemed. Uh, so we see that the reason that they're to live these kinds of, according to this biblical principle, is because if you don't live godly, you're a hypocrite. And if you don't do good works, you're a hypocrite. And there'll be people who are watching you, and they'll see that you're a hypocrite. And they say, well, that gospel can't be true. And uh, they'll look at the church and say, that church isn't doing anything in the community. And so to keep the outsiders, the lost people, from blaspheming the gospel and God, we are to live examples in front of them, to be examples in front of them. And then, so that's the fourth thing, teach the saints. Okay? Now there's a fifth thing that Paul tells Titus to do, and that's found in verses 7 and 8. He says, in all things showing yourself to be a pattern of good works. By the way, Titus, you need to be an example for the church. Okay? Showing yourself to be an example or a pattern of good works in doctrine or teaching. Showing integrity, reverence, incorruptibility. Sound speech that cannot be condemned. That one who is an, op an opponent may be ashamed having nothing evil to say of you. And so we're to live in such a way that the opponents, and in this case it would be the, the Jewish uh, rabble-rousers in the church, cannot say, well, you shouldn't listen to Titus. No, they, they won't be able to say that, because if you're living an exemplary life, they won't be able to say that, and your life will be a testimony to outsiders. Okay? So 
Also, we saw that we are to be zealous for good works. That's one of the keys. We're to be zealous for good works. <coughs> okay? Then last week, we covered chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. Okay? Notice how chapter 3 began. Look at the end of verse 1. Be ready for every good work. You see that? Be ready for every good work. Be ready. Okay? We ended in verse 8. <coughs> Look in the middle of verse 8. Be careful to maintain good works. Be careful to maintain good works. Beginning, be ready to do good works and then sustain good works. Don't do it once and say, well, I've fulfilled my obligation. We need to maintain good works. So the theme of this book is good works. Okay? So we're going to pick up at verse 9. <coughs> verse 9. So that's what we're to do, to live godly and maintain good works. So today we pick up at verse 9, and notice the first word in verse 9. It is, but. But. Okay? So, verses 1 through 8, we're told what we're to do. What are you to do? Devote yourself to good works. Now, beginning in verse 9, but, he's going to tell us what we're not to do. <laughs> so the but is a contrast. Verses 1 through 8, what we are to do, devote ourselves to good works. Now verse 9, but what we must not do. Look, but, what's the next word? Avoid, stay away from, don't be a part of, you know, uh, stand aloof from. So here's what you're to do, maintain good works. But here's what you're not to do. You need to avoid some things. What things? Four things. So let's see what those four things are in verse 9. Look what he says. Avoid foolish disputes. Okay? Avoid genealogies. Avoid contentions. Avoid strivings. Four things. And then notice the phrase right after that, about the law. You see that? That phrase, about the law, applies to all four things. So it should read, here's how we could read it. But here's some things that you're not to do. You need to avoid disputes about the law. You need to avoid genealogies dealing with the law. You need to avoid contentions about the law. You need to avoid strivings about the law. Four things. Now, what do these things mean? What are foolish disputes? Well, I'll give you an idea. The word disputes means arguments. Okay, when you have a dispute with someone, you argue. The word foolish or stupid is a Greek word one that you would recognize. Moros, from which we get our word what? Moron. Avoid moronic arguments. Okay, Some arguments are moronic, and you shouldn't be involved in those kinds of arguments. And that's what these Jewish dissenters were doing. These are people who say we believe in Christ, but we also believe you need to keep the law. And they're arguing this point, and they're arguments to get to the point of foolishness. Now, the second thing he mentions there are genealogies. And these Judaizers were promoting mythological stories. They were adding to the genealogies that you find in the Old Testament and telling stories about a person in the genealogy who's not there, but they would say, and then there was this guy, and he did this. And uh, he, that shows that this is how we're to live. And so those are the genealogies. The next thing you're to avoid are contentions, and contentions are quarrels and problems uh, that have no solution. 
Now, if you want to know what that's like, all you have to do is come to Criswell College and sit in the coffee shop any day of the week and listen to the students. And you'll see some on this side of the table, and they'll be arguing, free will, free will, free will. And then you'll see those on the other side, they'll be going like this, and they'll be arguing, election, election, election. Well, guess what? There's no, no solution to that problem. Why in the world would you spend two hours in the coffee shop arguing those things? So these are contentions, contentious arguments that have no solution. And then the final thing in verse 9, number 4, is striving. And striving is when you're making a heroic effort, and you just don't give up, to prove your point. You're, spending, you're wasting your time and energy to prove your point, and you're not going to convince anybody. So these are all about the law. So these are the four things that we are to avoid. Now, who is doing these things? It's the opponents, right? The opponents are the ones that are preaching the law. And what Paul is saying to Titus, hey, don't you get involved in that. Don't be a part of that. Don't waste your time doing that. That's just wasting your time. Majoring on minors. You know, don't become part of those arguments. And the reason is, look what he says right there at the end of verse 9. For they are unprofitable. Well, if something's unprofitable, what does that mean? That means it's unprofitable. It's not worth anything. There's no value to it. See? Those things are unprofitable, and they are what? Useless. They have no use whatsoever, no value. They are empty. They're vain. See? So these are four worthless activities that we are to avoid. So what are we to do, verses 1 through 8? Be ready and maintain good works. What are we not to do? Don't get involved in those four things. Then Paul continues in verse 10. And this is very interesting. He tells Titus. These are all commands, by the way. The word avoid means to avoid it. It commands you not to do these things. And make sure you don't do it ever. Just don't do it. And the next one is a continuous command. He says, reject a divisive man after the first and second admonition. Reject a divisive man after the first or second admonition. Now, back in chapter 1 and verse 13, he told Titus to rebuke the person who causes divisions, right? Notice the progress. In 1.13, rebuke those that cause divisions. And in verse 9, he says, avoid the kinds of things that they do, and now what does he say to do to these people? Reject them. Reject them when? After the first or second admonition. See? After they've been, you've tried to set them straight with sound doctrine. You've exhorted them. You've rebuked them for their errors. They don't listen. They refuse to listen. And after you've exhausted these different options, then finally guess what you're to do? Just reject them. Sever a relationship with them. Other parts of the Bible says, put them outside the church. There's a time when you excommunicate people. The Catholic Church has never had a problem excommunicating people. But evangelical churches have a very difficult time excommunicating people. We just don't do it because you know why? We want those numbers on our rolls. You know, 
and it might offend somebody. How about their relative? How about their friends? They might leave too. Well, guess what? Paul said, look, we've given them chance after chance. There's a point where you sever the relationship with these people because what Paul wants, he wants unity in churches. And these people are causing divisions, and there's no hope. And it's very interesting because look what it says in verse 11. What's the reason for re finally rejecting them after these admonitions? Knowing you do with this, you put them out knowing something. Look at this. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinning. First of all, he's warped. That's what he is. He sins. That's what he does. Look, he's warped. He's continually warped. You ever have a warped board, piece of lumber? It's crooked. Once it's warped, guess what? You don't, it's warped. <laughs> That's right. And the word warped there means perverted or crooked, and there's no hope of straightening it out. So it's not like you're putting these people out before time. It's become obvious that they are warped, and you cannot straighten them out. And that's what they are, and then what they do, sinning, continuously sinning. They never stop sinning. See, They're not taking the admonition. Look at the result in verse 11. Being what? Self-condemned. You see that? Being self-condemned. You're not judging them. You say, oh, you shouldn't judge a person. You're not judging them. Guess what? They've judged themselves. Their, their activities have condemned themselves. They have shown themselves to be apostates because they are not open to any kind of correction. They're devoid of redemption. This could be what, this could be a person who's actually point, uh, you know, crossed a line of no return. Or, as other scriptures say, you put them out in order that they will be saved. They'll come to their senses. Maybe that'll drive them to their senses, and they'll eventually come back. But they are condemning themselves. All you're doing is following God's orders here. But right now, there's no inclination to repent. Okay? So those are the first instructions that Paul gives to Titus. Now he gives him some personal instructions. And now it gets a little lighter, but it's, a, it's very interesting. Look what he says in verse 12. <clears throat> when I send Artemis to you, or Tychicus, be diligent to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Okay? So here we see that Paul intends to send one of two people, Artemis or Tychicus, and one of these guys is going to replace Titus. Okay, So Paul plans to have Titus be replaced. And when that guy arrives, he says, and this is also a command, you need to be diligent to come to me at Nicopolis. And Nicopolis, uh, you, you're familiar with that word, the English word, uh, because you see the word Nike in there, which means what? Victory. And you see polis in there, which means city, like metropolis. See? So this is called a victory city or the city of victory. That's what it was known as. Uh, located on the coast of Greece, and it was named a colony, which is a high status for a city in the Roman Empire. After Augustus defeated Mark Antony, remember him, Antony and Cleopatra? 
there was a, after Julius Caesar died, there was a fight for control of the Roman Empire. And Brutus and Cassius, remember Brutus, who killed Julius Caesar? He and Cassius got together, and Mark Antony, and they were fighting to control the Roman Empire against Augustus. And Augustus wins. And as a result of this victory, the Roman Empire is no longer divided. It's not people fighting for the control of the empire. The empire is now united under Augustus, who becomes Caesar, the next Caesar. And uh, this city was given the status of a victory city. Probably they helped Augustus in the fight for freedom. And Paul now plans to winter there. That's what he says in verse 12. For I plan to winter there. Uh, and Paul himself is a Roman citizen. Most people in the Roman Empire were not citizens. Paul is a citizen. And so he decides to go to a city that's been declared a colony, which is a privileged place where citizens of the Roman Empire can live and have a lot of privileges. He plans to spend the winter there. Okay? He's not going to travel over the winter. You can't get into a ship and travel over the winter in this region. And so he wants Titus to come there and meet him for the winter. He'll probably do some ministry. Now, it's very interesting when you look at verse 12, you see the word there. You see that? There. For I've decided to spend the winter there. It doesn't say I've decided to spend the winter here, does it? Because I decided to spend the winter there. It means that Paul hasn't arrived there yet himself. He's heading in that direction. He's going to send one of these other guys to replace Titus, and then he wants Titus to meet him there, and they're going to winter there together and probably minister together in Nicopolis. Okay, so now that's the first instruction, personal instruction. Then the second personal instruction is found in verse 13. Send Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their journey with haste. Now he mentions two other people. He mentions Zenos. The lawyer, he's probably a Roman jurist. He's been converted. Uh, he's part of Paul's missionary team. He is the only lawyer in the Bible mentioned by name. And he's a good guy, not a bad guy. I have somebody that tells me that every lawyer in the Bible is bad. No, here's a good lawyer, and he's mentioned by name. And Apollos, you know who that is, that's the great orator who has had a great influence on the church at Corinth. And he says, you need to send them on their way, on their journey with haste. And look what he says at the end of verse 13. That they may lack nothing. So what he is doing, he's holding Titus responsible once these guys arrive to send them on their way, and give them money and provisions to get to the next leg of their journey. That's how the early church did missions. You know, in the Southern Baptist Convention, all missionaries are on salary. Did you know that? Yeah, they're on salary. And then you have some faith mission organizations. Let's say like Sudan Interior Mission, you know, China Inland Mission, where the missionaries have to raise their own money. Well, neither one of those was the way they did it in the Bible. In the Bible, a church would send out a missionary, just like Antioch sent out the Apostle Paul. 
and they would give Paul and his team enough money and supplies to get to the next to their location. And then when they got to that location, that church would give them supplies and enough funds to get them to the next location. So every local church was responsible for getting the missionary to their next location. And Paul says, hey, and make haste about it. I don't want these guys hanging around there too long. So what we think is that when Paul writes to Titus, it is Zenos, the lawyer, and Apollos, the orator, who bring the letter to Titus. They're the ones that deliver the letter to Titus. And now Paul is saying, and once they arrive, get them on their way and make sure they have the supplies they need. Now, I don't think that Titus himself has to reach into his pocket and foot the whole bill. He's expecting the churches to do that on the island of Crete. So, it's just, uh, so the missionaries in Bible times operated totally by faith, trusting that God's people in each church would get them on the next leg of the journey. Does that make sense? Okay, now look at the third, the third command, personal command, found in verse 14. And let our people learn to maintain good works. Wait a second. You ever heard that before? I think you did back in verse 8. <laughs> maintain good works. Now look at verse 14. Maintain good works. He decided to throw it in one more time. Let's say we forget. I don't think, I, you know something? I hope that no one ever, if anybody ever said to you, what's the book of Titus about? I hope everybody in this room would say what? Good works. You, know, you may not have said that five weeks ago, but you should be able to say that with 100% assurance. And if you don't, I want to see you after class because you don't know. <laughs> so tell our people to learn. <laughs> see, it's something that's learned, isn't it? It doesn't come naturally to learn, to be disciplined, to maintain good works. Now look at this next phrase, which is very interesting. To meet urgent needs. This is talking about an obligation to meet urgent needs. So to maintain good works means to meet what kind of needs? Urgent needs. Not somebody's wants, not somebody's desires, but it's when there's an emergency. And there's an urgent need, whether it's the food or whatever the situation is, they're going to be put out of their house or whatever. An urgent need, okay? Meet urgent needs, okay? So that's our obligation. We're under that obligation. Look at the purpose, <coughs> right at the end of verse 14. That they may not be unfruitful. That they may, that's our people, may not be unfruitful. A church member who does not devote him or herself to good deeds is unfruitful. If you do not devote yourself to good deeds as a church member, you're unfruitful. Good works equals fruitfulness, right? Good works equals fruitfulness. That equal sign, if I turn it into a verb, it would be the verb is. Good works equals fruitfulness. Good works is fruit. Okay? No good works is what? Unfruitful, no fruit. Now, if you don't have fruit in your life, what are you? Are you a Christian? You're, that's right, you're a hypocrite. You're not a Christian because all Christians have what? Fruit. And we have to maintain good works. So if there's no fruit, 
there is no real believer. We need to follow the example of Jesus, whom Luke says, went about doing good. He did good works. We need to do good works. Okay? And now finally, we have these final greetings and a benediction in verse 15. He says, all who are with me greet you. So Paul is out ministering somewhere, and he is, has a team with him, and maybe he's planted a church, and he says, every single person knows I'm writing this letter, and they send their greetings. And then he says this, greet those who love us. Oh, there's a qualifier in that one. Pass on the greetings to those who what? Love us. Are there people, you think, in this church that don't love Paul? I think it would be the opponents and the Judaizers who are trying to preach the law. They don't have any love for Paul. And he doesn't even want you to say hi to those people. Look at that. Paul's very selective here. So not everyone loves Paul. But he says, greet all those who love us in the faith. See that? You have to be in the faith. That's a real believer. And then he says this. His final benediction, grace be with you. And that's a plural, with you all. Some translations have you all. Which means that this letter is to be read in front of the entire church. He's, saying, he's not saying to Titus, now say this to the people. He's saying it to the people. He's saying it to the church. Grace be to you all. See, And that's how he ends this letter. So this is a letter that's going to be read in front of the entire church, and he is asking God's grace and uh, benefaction upon them. So notice verse 15 opens up with the word all, and it closes with the word all. And what Paul is really interested is that there be a unity in the church, not some, really a unity in the church. He's hunting for this oneness in the church. And remember, a unity among believers, a unity among churches, even at a distance, all in his church, wherever he is located right now, greets all the believers on the island of Crete. See, there's a unity between churches, there's a unity between believers, and distance is not really a matter. And this is the basis of our cooperation. We're supposed to cooperate with other Christians, and we should be cooperating with other churches. So the theme is good works. And hopefully, this letter has convinced each one of us of the need to do good works. I hope it has. And then the last word in verse 15 is, Amen. So be it. Amen. And to that, every one of us should say, Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this study of Titus. Thank you for the summary, the overview that we had today and the conclusion. Help each one of us to examine our own lives, to see whether we are in the faith and they are, there is fruit in our lives, there's good works in our lives, or whether we just mouth Christianity. We mouth our commitment to Christ, but we do not exhibit our commitment to Christ to those who are in need. Help us to follow Jesus' example. Help us remember that one day we're going to stand before 
the Lord Jesus. And he's going to say, if you've done it to the least of these, my brethren, you've done it to me. So when we maintain good works, when we serve others, we're serving Christ. Lord, may this be the desire of our heart, and may it be played out in reality in our lives. In Christ's name, amen.